0: hello and welcome to the good friends of jackson elias a regular podcast about call of cthulhu horror films and horror gaming in general i'm paul fricker i'm scott Dalwood, and i'm matt sanderson in a previous episode, we discussed morality in role-playing games, and now today we turn to the subject of morality in the mythos.
1: But before we get into all that good stuff, what is going on?
0: So you've been recording, Scott, for a DVD this time with Tom Hanks. Sadly, the two of us were not sitting in the studio together doing this. I don't believe it.
1: But we had the next best thing. This was... A very strange opportunity that came up, which I am absolutely delighted to have been part of. We've been recording these so-called all-star games with How We Roll recently, where Seth Skorkowski and Veronica from Cthulhu and Friends have joined Joe and Owen and myself for a variety of games. And we were approached by Plumeria Pictures to do a DVD commentary track for the 40th anniversary edition of Mazes and Monsters, which is coming out around now. I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to order your very own copy. And so, yeah, basically, we sat there for an hour and 40 minutes and spent a lot of time going, what the fuck, and taking the piss out of this film. But Mazes and Monsters is a weird film film. It's not necessarily the film you think it is if you've heard about it, but at the same time it very much is. I mean, it was an early Tom Hanks film, it was made for TV, it was based on the Dallas Egbert uh, tragedy, this young man who I won't go into all the details here but whose misadventures and later death were blamed very much on role-playing games but actually had nothing to do with it and this whole mythology built up around it and led to the creation of this novel first four mazes monsters that was filmed as this tv movie it's a strange film and it became Swept up in the whole satanic panic thing, though there's no elements of that in the film. And the film isn't really as anti RPG as you might think from the premise, but at the same time, it's horribly inaccurate. And yeah, anyway, it's a weird film and it's a weird commentary track. And if you want to hear more about this weird bit of gaming history, then yeah, by all means, pick
2: it up. Well, I hear there's a pretty interesting weekend coming up. A weekend with good friends, perhaps? One might say that, yes.
1: Indeed, yeah, it's coming up fast. The next weekend with good friends will take place between the 4th and 6th of November of 2022, should you be listening to this in the distant future. But there are some key dates to bear in mind before then. If you want to run a game, GM signups will take place between the 30th of September and the 13th of October. The player sign-ups will take place between the 21st of October and the 27th of October, and the lottery results for places in the games will be announced on the 28th of October.
2: This is the convention that's been organised by the good folks over on our Discord channel, where there are a lot of people and they run a lot of games, not just at the weekend as well, but this will be the, the highlight of our online year.
0: And we'll put up notes on how to find those games on the website, blasphemoustomes.com. And now on to our main topic, morality in the Mythos.
1: Last time we discussed the general issue of morality in role-playing games, particularly with reference to game mechanics. But now we're going to dig into the Cthulhu Mythos and how morality factors into that. Are the gods and monsters of the Cthulhu Mythos evil? Can we even apply human concepts and morality to something so alien? And how can we introduce interesting moral quandaries into our games of Call of Cthulhu?
2: The time would be easy to know, for then mankind would have become as the great old ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, with laws and morals thrown aside, and all men shouting and killing and revelling in joy, then the liberated Old Ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves, and all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom.
1: Well, that is obviously the classic quotation from Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu that deals with the morality of the Great Old Ones, the gods, the mythos, or lack thereof. But what do we actually think Lovecraft is trying
2: to say in this quotation? I thought it was a Tory Party manifesto. Personally,
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh topical, topical! It's a great quote. I love it. I love it because I don't really totally get it, but mm. it's very evocative. But also, it's like terrible. It's horrific. It's uh, it's like the apocalypse is coming. But also. It's kind of sexy too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the phrases in it are it will teach us new ways to revel and enjoy ourselves. And then there's a the promise of ecstasy and freedom. It sounds like a pretty good time, if I'm honest. I mean, it, bring it on. Cthulhu sat in the corner of the nightclub
2: handing out e pills. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I well, mean, it's a good time if you're one of the people doing the killing and well, reveling. You would be, though, if you're on right? the receiving end
0: of it. Oh,
2: mm, don't bring it down.
0: But no, I think it's tantalising, isn't it? Because it's like, it's saying, this is really bad. Like, people are going to be rushing around killing each other and it's going to be horrendous. But at the same time, it's going to be fun. You know, he's used those words in there that when you read it, it kind of sparks a bit of excitement too, to me.
1: I remember when we were discussing this quotation with Chris Lackey in our episode on Cthulhu and the cults of Cthulhu, We were trying to work out whether this was any representation of the morality of the great old ones, or specifically Cthulhu himself, or whether this was the interpretation by his cultists of what Hmm. his return would lead to. And I'm more inclined to think of it in terms of the latter, because these are people who've been shown to be barbaric and to enjoy bloodletting and sacrifice and so on. And it's like Okay, Cthulhu's returned, and this gives us license to do all that, because he's going to free us to express our inner impulses, to be everything that we be without the cloistering effects of human morals. And of course, this is going to involve bloodshed and revelry and uh, and all that stuff. But... Is that really the case? Is that what is within most people? Or is this a reflection of the morality of those cultists rather than the
0: morality of Cthulhu? I don't know, but I'm signing up to Team Castro. (laughs) 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 But no, it also sort of speaks to me of the terror of the mob, you know, the kind Mm. of mob mentality, that when you get a group of people that get, very animated about something, they kind of throw off their morals and they stop acting as individuals and yeah. perpetrate some sort of heinous acts because there's this mob mentality. It kind of speaks of that, which I find quite terrifying, a terrifying thing to be caught up in. Reminds me a lot of the closing act of Quatermass and the Pit, where you have mm. the population
2: of London possessed by the alien spirits or having the, that part woken in their subconscious and they start acting as a mob.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think Nigel Neal was almost certainly heavily influenced by Lovecraft there. Lovecraft was an obvious influence on a lot of his work, and I can definitely see parallels there.
0: So it also makes me think a little bit of Event Horizon, of that message they get from the people that mm. kind of go beyond the, you know, the Event Horizon or whatever, uh, and th- that message they get back. They seem to have lost their all sense of their humanity in that little clip that they get. It just seems like a vision of hell. And I kind of feel like this would be perhaps a little like that.
1: I'm not sure that they did lose or trace their humanity. I think what makes that frightening is that what those people were doing at Event Horizon was very human. It's humanity without restraint. It's the darker animalistic side of humanity. But those consequences there, as we see with the cultists in The Call of Cthulhu, is a very human one. And I think that if we're going to accept that the Great Old Ones exist outside human morality, then I think it's unfair, potentially, or at least limiting, to ascribe such simple barbarity to their morality or what changes that they could bring about in humanity
0: i kind of got lost in that sorry
1: what i'm saying is that The evils that we see in that quotation in Event Horizon and so on are very human evils, that torture and bloodletting and so on, Mm. murder. People don't need any encouragement to do that. We do that all the fucking time. Human history is absolutely full of that. And to say that, oh, yeah, Cthulhu comes along and we're suddenly free to do all that, well, no, we always have been, and we always have done it. I think that if we're going to start looking at the morality as a mythos, then that is probably a red herring, that that whole bit.
2: Sounds like an
0: average Friday night on the Lakes Estate.
1: <laughs>
0: I, I feel like the, what he's sort of warning us of is this power that strips away this veneer of civilization that we have that keeps everything running smoothly that the mythos will sort of burn that away and, and allow everything that sort of bubbles underneath just to, to run free. You know, when I drive around the country sometimes you look at fields with crops in and there's shops with everything you can think of and there's people being nice to each other and you think, how have we achieved this state of harmony for the most part, not everywhere. Mm. Not everywhere in the world is is like no. this and, and not anywhere in the world is totally like this. But as a whole civilizations are just such a an achievement i think you know that on the whole we get on around here where i live people get on and they live relatively harmoniously
1: but it's a fragile thing
0: yeah yeah
1: and it falls apart at the slightest provocation
0: and i think that's what lovecraft's warning us of here isn't it he's saying like when they turn up all that protection all that nice stuff that you know it's all going to go and we're going to see what lies beneath, you know, those the horrors that people are capable of, I guess. That's what we fear, I think.
1: But when I'm thinking about the morality side of it, I'm thinking about the fact that you have Castro here who is talking about this as if it's going to be a joyous release, as mm. if this is going to be freedom as opposed to horror. That, as I said, I see much more as being a reflection of Castro
0: than of Cthulhu. Yeah, I think there's two things here, aren't there? There's human morality and there's mythos, which I don't think we can put human morality on because they're not. You know, I think one of the key things about the mythos to me is that, as I understand it, is the mythos is totally separate to us. So it's not like, say, vampires feed on humans or um, ghosts are dead humans that have come back to haunt us or whatever. But the mythos is as a conception of a kind of monstrous thing, is, is totally separate to us. It's it's not interested in humans. It's not on our kind of scale of morality or good and evil, I don't think.
1: But where we have interesting games or interesting mythos stories is always about that interaction between humanity and the mythos. It's when these two disparate elements come together and about the way that they Perhaps shape each other. From that point of view, I think it's not unreasonable to try to at least see the mythos through the lens of human morality, even if it doesn't quite fit, because we, as, as intelligent, sentient creatures, just perceive things that way this is the lens through which we see the world. Sure, it probably makes about as much sense to discuss an outer god in moral terms as it does um, a thunderstorm or an earthquake. But humans have always seen morality in those things as well. I mean, just look at preachers who blame gay people for earthquakes, or people who, in olden times, used thunderstorms or storms as personifications of gods. We just see the world that way. It's the way
0: we're wired. I mean, I guess the difference in this kind of fiction, if you take in the mythos, in that case, if we're going to take these things, you know, if we accept like the mythos gods in the fiction they're, they're real in the fiction, hmm. so they can be doing these terrible things, whereas in real world the gods aren't creating thunder or whatever, it's just atmospheric conditions, right? But what I'm trying to say is that reality is different to fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so for example, cultists or certain peoples in the game fiction might be making sacrifices to the gods hmm. if people do that in the real world well that's clearly a criminal act it's not going to have any realistic effect other than murder but in the game or in the mythos fiction if they make sacrifice to the gods maybe that is going to have some effect you know because it's, it's so we can't compare like with like
1: But you're also talking about one very specific strand of morality, the morality that we in the modern-day Western world have. But you talk about human sacrifices being almost objectively wrong there, which, from my own personal morality, yes, absolutely, I think it's wrong. Hmm. But on the other hand, if you were to look at, say, the Aztecs, you'd have a really hard time convincing them of that.
2: Sure if we don't throw this guy down the temple steps and cut his head off, the sun won't rise.
1: Hmm. Heresy. And that is a code of morality that they're following there. It's not because they've gone insane. It's not because they've shed more morality. It's because that is the moral code that they have developed and adhere to.
0: Yep. I'm not quite getting your point.
1: You were talking about how it would be something alien for people to start making human sacrifices to the gods. No, I don't think it's alien. Or at least it was outside our morality. And I was just saying that it hasn't always been the case, that there, you know, there are definitely cultures where that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. But when it comes to the deities of the Cthulhu mythos, you mentioned a bit before about them being harmful or maybe even being able to perceive them as as evil let's talk about the ones that operate completely off a human scale and so we'll take neolithatep bast and and hypnos and nodens out of the equation mm-hmm. but the other ones how do you see the morality of these you know, completely ineffable things
2: i keep thinking of them as being almost this is almost straying a bit too close to a Delethian heresy maybe but seeing them as almost manifestations of concepts or for fundamental forces of nature things like aboth for example the great source of uncleanliness or Yog of time and space they are elements of creation they're elements of the universe. They don't have agendas. They're just things that are. Mm. That maybe the morality comes from those that interact with them to try and use them towards their own ends. Maybe with the Oxophilus, you potentially got a bit of an argument with the likes of the Waitleys that he did uh, Mm. beget his son and uh, brought him down to Earth. So there is maybe some motivation behind there, which definitely would imply intelligence, which and with intelligence there is to some extent morality will come hand in hand with that but maybe it's just again we don't understand the the scale on which it operates.
1: Yeah I find Wilbur Waitley and his connection with the Ox to be a particularly interesting one when we start uh, talking about morality because If we look at the Dunwich Horror, Waitley's plan is basically to restore the Earth to a condition that it was back when these alien gods ruled everything and to take it back to a place in space and time where it's sort of the natural environment for these entities where they can thrive again obviously that has the potential side effect of wiping out humanity but is it evil
2: it's no more of a side effect than if a volcano explodes and showers lava over a town that exists on the slopes of the volcano it just it's just something that happens
0: i think you can't answer that without saying what do you mean by evil i don't know what evil means really
2: I am not a
1: philosopher, I've never studied philosophy, so I think trying to come up with any universal working definition of evil is probably beyond me. But from a personal perspective, the way I'd define evil is a form of malignant selfishness that is capable of carelessly or deliberately causing harm to others for personal gain without any compassion.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, like you say, I don't know if I can define good and evil. I'm not sure if good and evil are just relative terms, whether they really exist. I, I use the words in everyday speech in everyday communication Mm. but to say something is truly evil i can say that was an evil thing to do it was an evil act can a person be evil i don't know i don't think so or at least on the surface of it i don't think so but i could probably be swayed um i think better for me is to say that the mythos is antithetical to humanity Mm. and i sort of see this in call of cthulhu the role-playing game there is a game where humanity is pitched against the forces of the mythos in some manner and i think role-playing games work best when they have a premise and i think that is one of the the key premises of call of cthulhu now you could play a role-playing game where that's not the case where Mm. the mythos is or certain aspects of the mythos, because the mythos isn't just one big thing. Yeah. So it could be that your deep ones are just misunderstood beings. And some of them could be good and you could get on with them. Or, you know, you could form bonds with ghouls and go off on adventures with ghouls, things like that. So there's all manner of potential, as we talked about in the previous episode about morality and role-playing games, is often most interesting to kind of subvert the normal expectations mm. so this is a monster but in this game in this story we're going to turn that on its head and say you know this is the thing that's going to and teaming up with these in inverted commas monsters is actually the route to doing something good you know we actually want to help them because they're actually better than maybe they're better than some of the people around and that would be a cool story shoggoth paladins Okay, Matt, (laughs) is that your next character? (laughs) Hell no. (laughs) But I think on the whole, when I'm coming up with a premise for a Call of Cthulhu scenario, I'm looking at it in some way. The mythos is set against humanity, and I'm looking for a way that that kind of manifests into the game, usually through, to bring it back to, to what we were talking about, usually through the vehicle of people. Yeah. You know, somewhere people, a person, has had an influence or an exchange with the mythos that has somehow had an influence on them.
1: Yeah, I think an important part of getting to the bottom of this is making a distinction between a villain and an antagonist. When I see discussions online about Call of Cthulhu, particularly from New Keepers, I see A lot of them talking about, oh, what entity should I use as the villain in this scenario? What is my big, bad, evil guy here? And, I mean, it's a useful shorthand. And Mm. if you've come from other role-playing games, I can entirely understand seeing it in those terms. But I don't think I ever necessarily see... The mythos itself, mythos entities, or very rarely see them as villains in these things. I do, however, very often see them as antagonists, because, like you say, there may be agendas at play that are antithetical to human survival or well-being. There may just be simple clashes. Going back to the idea of the Dunwich Horror... Wilbur Waitley's plan, or the return of Yogg-Sothoth and so on, fundamentally feels to me almost like my kitchen is now overrun with ants. There's an ant's nest outside, I'll just boil a kettle and go outside and pour the, the boiling water on the ants and everything will be okay again. And you don't necessarily see that as a person as being an act of genocide. Where you're dealing with entities that are operating at that kind of scale, then you may see things that in human terms would be utterly vindal like mass murder happening, that are in this context completely amoral.
2: Yeah, this seems to be a regular debate that comes up online with some of these videos that people post about uh, pouring lead onto ants' nests they say oh the nest has been scheduled for extermination anyway so these ants are going to die or the nest has been cleared out as best as we can do the ones that are left behind are minimal and there's always this argument about you've just poured hot lead onto these poor defenseless creatures to make a work of art or clear this big nest out and there are people that argue blind on both sides saying no they're just ants what's the problem others saying no they're poor helpless defenseless creatures and it
0: does become a quite Quite
2: a dividing line that people definitely fall on one side or the other.
0: I can't believe such an argument would happen on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) You mean there's a topic that people disagree about? Regularly as well. Yeah, Yeah, I have seen that, Matt. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's interesting in terms of human morality, because you do get some Buddhist monks, for example, who will do things like put bells around their ankles so that they can try to warn off any insects that they might step on. And I kind of wonder what the mythos equivalent of that would be.
2: (laughs) Hmm. Ithaca flying over the hills, bells jangling at the braces (laughs) going, go on, humans, go away, just in case I scare you.
1: (laughs) And that's why we believe in Santa Claus. (laughs) But, Paul, a moment ago you touched on something which I think is at the core of all of this, which is about what happens when humans tap into the mythos. Hmm that for me, at least when I'm writing scenarios or thinking about these things, is very much where the moral element comes in, because this is human morality tapping into the power of the mythos, which is a very different thing than the morality of the mythos itself.
0: Yes, and how it's influenced by the force of the mythos or corrupted or or whatever that may be i think as people we tell stories about people generally that's what we do Hmm. i think it's generally more interesting rather than just having a fight with a bunch of shoggoths it's more interesting if it's a bunch of people and maybe there's a shoggoth in the background somewhere in the story but (laughs) you know it's about people
2: lasts a lot longer too and you have more of a game
0: in all seriousness it tends to be stories i think the the games tend to be more interesting when it's things that you can talk to as a person so as a human character you can talk to deep ones you can talk to ghouls you can talk to it's not so easy to talk to a shoggoth i mean potentially you could because they've got the intelligence and lots of mouths (laughs) and lots of mouths and eyes but it tends to be that human scale i think so we tell stories in which humans are central and which other kind of human analogs if you want to use that word are perhaps central too
1: But specifically the human aspect, before we get on to the humanoid or human scale creatures, the human aspect of it fascinates me because you do obviously have some of this in Lovecraft with human sorcerers and wizards and and Mm, cultists and so on. But when I'm thinking of particularly moral quandaries or or even antagonistic characters who have particularly villainous motivations in my scenarios. They are almost inevitably humans who have brought their human values to the mythos, who have found some mythos source of power drawn upon it, but it is their own selfishness and moral corruption that then leads to tragedy and horror. And that to me is... A lot more
0: frightening, I guess. Yeah, because it's that feeling of this is a human being doing terrible things, hmm. and human beings can do terrible things. So that's more direct, that's more realistic. Where if it's a big tentacled monster, there's a part of us knows that that's just a fiction.
2: The example I'm about to give isn't for Call of Cthulhu, but I think you could still achieve it in Cthulhu with the same effect. But we were playing a, a game of cult recently in which we came across a group of For all intents and purposes, monsters, I won't give away which ones in case people end up playing the scenario. But these monsters, when you normally come across them, have a very specific role in the cult mythos and they are generally considered bad news. We ended up talking to them, explaining what we were trying to do and they actively tried to help us by non-action, basically standing aside to let us perform what we wanted because they agreed with what our motivations were. And that moment Mm. when you kind of empathise with what was you believe the antagonist was a hell of a kind of culture shock moment and i think you could do that in the mythos as well with ghouls in particular because they have human origins that there is that degree of compatibility there where you can be in the same mindset that you might have ghouls that are very happy to go out and kill people to make them dead so they can become part of their stock of their larder others that completely disagree with the act of human murder deep one's the same thing maybe they don't like taking breeding stock from the shorelines and they'd rather find other ways to keep their population numbers up and prolong their existence so yeah there's plenty of similar kind of conflicts you can have
0: and we see some of that in the story we looked at recently dream quest for unknown caddath where carter meets ghouls and they aren't all friendly but there's his friend pickman and we get this bond with them and they they act together hmm so that really subverts what we thought about ghouls previously in lovecraft's work who knows what he would have gone on to do had he lived maybe we would have seen that story about deep ones
1: i think there's been a real thread in modern mythos fiction of using lovecraft's creations as a way of critiquing some of his xenophobia and fear of the other by presenting these monsters, these creations in much more human terms. There's been mm. Ruthanna Winter uh, Wintertide and the associated books. There's The Private Life of Elder Things, which we've talked about before, which shows perhaps a more sympathetic side of some of these mythos entities. And I, I think any number of, of contemporary stories doing the same. They don't say that these creatures are human or operate in human ways necessarily, but they do show that a lot of potentially what makes us afraid of them is not malevolence or evil on their part, but just the fact that we're afraid of them for being alien. Along those lines, do you think that it's easier to apply human morality or see things in terms of human morality when we're dealing with creatures that operate at a human scale like ghouls and deep ones, or maybe even yithians?
2: Hmm. I think there's enough, or at least a partial degree of common ground where you can at least try to put that stamp on them, such as like the older things, for example, where at the end Lovecraft says, no, they mm. were men.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah,
2: and that he very much described them in human terms and that their goals and such, the struggles they'd had and the use of slavery and such, were all very human concepts that he applied. So he had a point of reference for describing them. So I think as long as there is that connection, then I think it's something you can attempt, but it's almost like trying to put a – in my eyes anyway – It's like trying to put a circular peg into a square hole, but the square is just about big enough to allow you to push it through, (laughs) but there's still plenty of gaps on each side. It's not the right implement to do the job, but it will do it.
1: Yeah, the older things are a particularly interesting example there, because the horror from our interaction with them in uh, The Mountain's Madness comes from the fact that they uh, awaken and start vivisecting some of these human explorers. Mm. And... That's kind of what we'd do. Hmm. So the horror there comes from seeing almost a reflection of human behaviours and human morality just in an alien form. It's the fact that it's directed at us that makes it scary.
2: I just thought it was
0: also the fact that they did some terrible things to dogs. I mean, what kind of person does that? <laughs> it feels like a very modern thing to do to subvert these monsters and say, well, oh, actually, you know, they can be good but. When we look at it, there's two examples from Lovecraft of him actually doing that with the Elder Things and with Ghouls, Yeah, which is um, interesting to look back at the source material and see that was actually the case, that he was doing that.
1: I'd go one stage further and say that he did it to some extent with Deep Ones, because The Shadow of Rinsmith is, I think, a much more complicated story morally than people give it credit for, because it's Really easy to see it in terms of, oh, guy goes to town, finds it's full of fish people, things get scary, they chase him out of town, and so on. But there's more to it than that. I mean, when our narrator first encounters mention of uh, the people of Innsmouth from, I think it's a uh, ticket clerk in, in Arkham, when he's trying to find travel to Innsmouth, the guy tells him that. The reason that a lot of people in the area don't like the residents of Innsmouth may just be down to the fact that a lot of them have got South Sea Islander blood and there's racial prejudice against them. Mm. He actually says that explicitly. Certainly when you get to Innsmouth, yes, all right, the people there are creepy the towns run down and so on and yes it does have a dark history involving human sacrifice but then again as we said you know that isn't something that people don't do as well you can look at the shadow of rinsmouth as being a depiction of a town that has been taken over by a cult the fact that the cultists aren't fully human is almost irrelevant in that case. You could tell pretty much the same story without the Deep One element, and it would be just as frightening that, you know, you go to town and find out there's a sinister cult there, the hysteric Order of Dagon, and it's got this dark history, and yeah, that is still frightening. By the time you get to the end with the protagonist coming to terms with his own Deep One bloodline his only one heritage and his eventual transformation sure you can see that as a descent into madness or you can see it as him accepting the fact that he is different Mm. and i think for all lovecraft's xenophobia and the fear of race mixing that goes into this story and so on i think it's also possible to read it as a surprisingly compassionate story uh, not compassionate the wrong word empathetic story mm. fundamentally in it yeah the deep ones are people they just happen to be people
2: with gills grinding nemo as i heard once said oh,
0: dear. <laughs> yeah so it's these things are more complex than they appear on the surface i think I guess it's interesting to try and incorporate some of that into our games. Often in a game, we just go for a more simplistic story because you've got a few hours to get through the story. You've got to get everybody on board. And it can be quite a a simplistic plot that you can go for. And that could be a fun game. But in a longer campaign, I think there's space for, particularly in a long campaign, there's perhaps room for more subtlety. And more complexity and incorporation of those kind of themes. Certainly, when I use entities
1: like Deep Ones and Ghouls in my games, I very rarely portray them as monsters, or at least not directly as monsters. Sure, they're frightening, sure, they do horrible things, and I'll definitely want to remind the players of that. But at the same time, they're intelligent, they have their own motivations, they can be allies, Mm. they can be sympathetic. And more than that, I think it's interesting to present them as as not a sort of monoculture. You can have different strands of belief and different moralities. Someone isn't going to be evil just because they're part ghoul or part deep one or whatever, no more so than because they're part human.
0: Have you used any entities like that, Matt, where you've kind of given them more a human sense of morality and complexity?
2: Yeah, there's a couple I can think of. Admittedly, where the entity themselves are not human and they don't really have anything that would make them mm. physically resemble human, but they've had enough interactions with humanity to either, well, they have reactions to them. They either hate them for what humanity has done to them, or they they have at least a, an understandable reaction that you can empathise with. So yeah, I, mean, I, I can definitely play off them that it's. These creatures, even though they are completely alien, can be understood.
1: For example, when we did the two-headed serpent, I won't go too heavily into spoiler territory here, but I think the name probably gives away that it involves serpent people. That's not going to be a huge surprise, and it's something that is confirmed almost straight out of the gate.
2: You mean it's not a Deep One game? What the hell?
1: But when I was thinking of the, uh, the serpent people characters in there personally, i wanted to make sure that you've got these sinister conspiracies and they're up to bad things but i did want to try to make them at least feel partly sympathetic or at least for their motivations to be comprehensible Hmm. because these were an ancient race who once ruled the earth and these upstart human beings came along and just about wiped them out and at some stage they want to try to get back what they lost and i think almost anyone could identify with that
2: damn dirty
0: apes all that said though sometimes i just like a game where you run around and kill monsters Mm.
1: yeah but i guess where (sighs) that becomes tricky for me is where those monsters are intelligent Now, if you have a game where you have purely predatory or more bestial things, you've got borderline cases like, say, Shoggoths or maybe a Hound of Tindalos, where they are more animalistic, where they feel more predatory, then I think that makes the morality a bit simpler than it would with Deep One's Ghouls or Elder Things or even Serpent People.
2: I was going to say with creatures like that, you might as well just have a survival horror game, in which case, go play something like All Flesh Must Be Eaten. But then, even with that, you've got a morality of oh, that comes up in the likes of Dawn of the Dead. They were people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They may be a zombie, they may be a monster, but they have a human face. They once could have been your neighbor, for example. You don't mm-hmm. have that with something like a Hound of Tindalos or a Shoggoth. Yeah, it might have eyes and it might have a mouth, but otherwise, it is something, again, completely alien that I don't know kind of loses something because it becomes so removed from the human condition that again you don't have that connection with them that you don't feel bad about necessarily well i was going to say necessarily killing them but good luck if you can find a way to kill a hound
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes but even then these things are predatory they're dangerous to people But that doesn't mean that you as a keeper or a scenario writer can't come up with ways of at least making what they're doing more, maybe not sympathetic, but at least make it a bit muddier than, oh, they're just monsters and they're going to kill me. So, I mean, for example, with The Hound of Tindalos, yes, all right, there's this whole idea from the story that they come from that if you send your consciousness back in time and encounter one, it's going to be attracted to this and hunt you down and kill you and, and so on. But why is it doing that? Is it some kind of guardian? Is it trying to protect violations of time that might be dangerous to it and the things it serves? Does it have a really good reason for doing this?
2: All the reasons in Frank Belknock Long's story are very heavily laden in metaphor and very heavily obfuscated so that you don't really know exactly what he's talking about.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah.
2: That gives plenty of scope for authors and scenario writers to put their own reasons on it. But one way that I think you could probably make them more sympathetic or use them to a more interesting degree in a story is if you've been, and you as the players, have been thrust into an encounter with them that's not of necessarily your own volition, mm. that it's not your own accident. It's actually the work of someone else. Because then if the being realises that it's been used to effectively dispatch you as a, like a hired goon, then you could potentially try to get it to realize that and get it to focus on the person that set it onto you so the real bad guy behind the scenario Mm. and that might be a more interesting take on just having this lion stalking you through the jungle using that analogy that this thing is just a a wild animal that is still quite capable of killing you with one swipe but something that has maybe an intelligence that can be directed away from you and have that again, degree of understanding that, no, I'll leave you alone and I'll take out the real problem here.
1: Yeah, I like that. I mean, one thing that I always like in games is when there is a non-violent solution to things. Certainly from a moral point of view, that appeals to me, but just from a problem-solving point of view as well, if you can talk your way out of a situation or, like you say there, redirect it towards the person who's actually responsible for the whole thing, then. Yeah, I think that's really cool.
0: I feel like a lot of this is looking at a particular style of gaming and a particular kind of approach to gaming. That there's kind of a an overview of things that when you're when you're talking about things and uh, in theory hmm. is very different to practice. So yeah, you know, we talk about oh, how moral dilemmas are great and how you know it'd be good not to be violent and not to kill mindlessly and stuff like that and then we play the game and we're just killing things willy-nilly and it's great fun break out the tommy guns i mean i'll remind you of the game we played in wild west not so long back a couple of years back now where you two just shot a load of children as they climbed out of a house they deserved it they i mean you know you're the same people that took great glee in that at the time so you know, but now, objectively, you're going to say, well, that was morally reprehensible and we don't want to do that sort of thing. But when you're actually playing the game, I think you've got to own it that you enjoyed it. The point I
1: was going to make is I like being given the choice. Yes, sometimes, I mean, depending on the game, that's that's absolutely fine. Yeah, but the point is that I don't always make the same choice, that there are plenty of games where I've tried to talk my way out of violent situations. I almost never create characters with combat stats these days. I rely almost entirely on talking. Do you recognise this man, Matt?
2: I was going to say, it's just because he hasn't got a D6 damage bonus, he's gone all soft on us.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It depends entirely what mood I'm in. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes I do just want to shoot a deep one in the face. But other times it is... Nice to be in a situation where you can try to come up with a creative, peaceful resolution to a horrible situation, or at least the least worst solution.
0: That can be good, but we don't seem to be including the fact that combats can be a lot of fun in this discussion. And I think if it's a fantasy style game, you know, or, and I include some mythos stuff potentially in that, then taking on a load of monsters, I think can be great fun i don't think there's any denying that i mean we we quite happily do that in like video games and, and i know i don't think doing that in a game like makes you a bad person or means i mean i've never like shot anyone or stabbed anyone in real life but i've done it in games loads of times and i'm mm. gonna say it. you know it's it, it's great fun because it's a, a dramatic thing in the game
1: well, I think a big part of it is making sure you start the game with the right kind of expectations about what it is. So if you're running a game or signing up to play a game where you want it to be all about hard moral choices and... spelling all that out ahead of time isn't necessarily a bad idea if you're saying all right this is going to be a pop Cthulhu game and is going to be inspired by assault on precinct 13 except with monsters you're going to be under siege and you're going to have to fight for your lives that's a very different thing
0: in my experience i think probably the best moral dilemmas have come about organically not sort of been planned for they just kind of crop up in game and it's between the players that that kind of evolves
2: Hmm. there's one instance where i can think of that happened in one game that i ran actually scott was uh, almost like the uh, the one single member of the audience (laughs) watching it play out this situation had been set up where something bad had happened and the players were realizing what was going on it, in its own right, didn't have any moral compass. It was just something that had happened to a particular NPC. And the PCs had a couple of ways of dealing with this. And the whole moral debate came from, do they have the right to effectively just sacrifice this guy or let this fate befall him? Or do they attempt to try and save him? Right. And, yeah, it, it became quite a heated debate between the players. I thoroughly loved it. I just sat back and watched pretty much for the vast majority. Yeah, the
0: best.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But well, we've talked a bit about the sort of mythos deities that operate on a scale beyond human understanding and a bit about monsters that operate on human scales and how we... Relate to those morally. But there is also a kind of grey area in the mythos, which comes in, I think, quite a lot into Call of Cthulhu gaming, of gods that do operate on a human scale sometimes. Obviously, from an antagonistic point of view, there's Nialafatep, who we see operating on a human scale in the fiction and who definitely does so in in games, but even then you also have gods like Nodens and Bast and potentially Hypnos who do the same. So let's take Nyarlathotep to one side and discuss him separately, but the others are sometimes allies you can draw upon. Does that make them good guys?
0: Hmm. I'm not a fan of it, to be honest. I'm not a fan of having those powerful entities be allies Mm. why would they use humanity as allies is my question if they're doing it for their own ends why would they do that because you know if they're such powerful entities i don't really know what gods are but if we call them powerful entities and if they're doing it to help mankind that's even more incomprehensible to me you know why would they do that so it's like either way you cut it i don't really get it so again i'd go back to them being kind of antithetical to human existence. The idea of them just being like bad weather or, a you know, a, a force of nature, I kind of get that, but I think they're more proactive in some way than that.
1: I think there are different kinds of gods there. The ones where we're talking about them being like forces of nature, I see that being much more like Yog-Sothoth or shub or, mm. or even Azathoth. But these other ones, they are more anthropomorphic. Hmm.
0: There's a quote from M.L. James that I think has a bearing on this. Another requisite, in my opinion, is that the ghost should be malevolent or odious. Amiable and helpful apparitions are all very well in fairy tales or in local legends, but I have no use for them in a fictitious ghost story. Hmm. He's not talking about mythos, but I think we can draw a parallel with that and how he's sort of saying that that supernatural entity, if we want to, cast the mythos in that mould should be malevolent or odious. I think one of the classic
2: examples that gets brought up with that particular quote is the footprints in the sand in Warning to the Curious starts off like normal footprints but then slowly becomes more skeletal and something distinctly unwholesome. Quite a horrific image where he doesn't actually show you the thing itself but just the, the traces it leaves behind.
1: But specifically with these deities... I have used some of them on occasion and used them on a human scale. So, for example, Bast, I think there is perhaps the temptation to use her as a sort of patron or an ally, but I've... Being very drawn to using her as, well, something a bit more feline, something mercurial and predatory and dangerous, that you might get in her good graces for a little bit, but fundamentally you're still probably just a tasty
2: morsel to her. Have you run out of catnip yet? Mm. And
1: Nodens is an interesting one. I mean, obviously we did an episode on Nodens, but we sort of see his not benevolent side but useful side potentially in the dream quest of unknown Kadath. very briefly i mean he's mentioned off screen but it does seem to be less that he's an ally you can draw upon more that he has this ongoing game or this ongoing series of conflicts with Nyarlathotep and it's almost like humans are the chess pieces they're playing with at times. I don't think that makes him in any way benevolent Nyarlathotep, I think, is a much more interesting one. Again, obviously, we did an episode on him, but I've been thinking about him in terms of him being a trickster deity, because tricksters are always more morally ambiguous than the sort of sinister, moustache-twirling villain that he's often portrayed as in the mythos. And I think it's potentially much more interesting to think of him as a trickster I sort of got that vibe, as I mentioned, when we were discussing Dream Quest of Unknown Gadath. But mm. tricksters in legend can lead people to new discoveries and new solutions, knowledge that may be dangerous and may destroy them or may prove to be useful. They can play with people in ways that help or hurt them. And they are... Unpredictable, dangerously so. I think that's a very fun way to use Nyarlathotep if he's going to operate at a human scale. Then treat him as a classic trickster. Take inspiration from gods like Loki or Anansi and have some fun with him
2: something that points out a flaw in a human personality that maybe they hadn't realised is a flaw or maybe they thought was even more ironically been a strength and showing them the error of their ways to maybe improve them. But it depends on what you um, classify as improve at that point. Is Nyarlathotep wanting to uh, bring out those things going back to our opening quote, to uh, show them how to perform new ways of killing and reveling and joy. Mm. It all depends on what the compass and the motivation is behind that trick that's being pulled.
0: I think that's one of the great things about working with the Cthulhu mythos for Call of Cthulhu is that it's not like other licensed properties which define what the mm, entities are and what the antagonists are, and who the NPCs are, and what items will do, and so on. There's some of that in the rulebook, but you've really got so much freedom to recast Nalathotep however you want. Yeah, Nobody's going to say, oh, you're doing it wrong. Oh, some people might say that, but nobody's really going to say, you're doing Nalathotep wrong, because you can do him however you want. He can just be some guy that turns up in one of your scenarios, and has a word with one of the player characters, and then buggers off. It can be like this big godlike thing. It can be all sorts of things. So it's it just gives you so much freedom to reinvent him and then do another game where he's totally different. Yeah, and it's still not Last Tap.
1: What's in the Call of Cthulhu rulebook isn't canon. It's surfing suggestions,
0: which I find a lot easier to then use to create my own scenarios. And I wonder if, like in our previous episode when we talked about Dogs in the Vineyard, where as a player I was confused initially because i thought there was a a kind of pre-written code that i was supposed to be adhering to you know as my player character then i realized there wasn't and i wonder if people come to call a cthulhu thinking there's some sort of pre-written code if you like you know, a canon that you know i'm supposed to work with here you know it's supposed to be the setting is supposed to be like this and you know i'm sure people feel like oh i might do it wrong well don't worry you're not going to do it wrong just do it how you want to do it and your next game you know it's just i think it's like yeah, you could make a horror film. or your next horror film doesn't have to pick up where the last horror film left off. Yeah. Directors don't work like that. Why should we?
2: Unless you're doing one of the many Friday the 13th part 56 and having to continue on. Even then.
1: <laughs> they contradict each other all over the place. There's no real continuity. And they change their mind from film to film about what Jason even is. And so, no, no, no. <laughs> Feel free to reinvent stuff so shall i wrap up the discussion with a provocative question
0: if you feel that would be morally acceptable (laughs) depends how provocative it is if you do
1: want to bring human morality more into your games of call of cthulhu if you want to sort of simplify the morality of the whole thing is august derlith the answer derlith as we've touched upon in earlier episodes brought good and evil into the cthulhu mythos there were good gods there were evil gods it was a battle between forces of good and evil which is completely absent from lovecraft's work is that more useful perhaps to people as a a concept in gaming
2: by useful do you mean boring then maybe yes
0: well I've got two answers. One is, no. (laughs) And two is, why are you fucking banging on about Durlith again? (laughs) Haven't we talked about him enough? There are lots of other authors. You know, I just don't know why you keep going back to Durlith. He was kind of very significant at one time, but I think he's just like not that significant anymore. The
1: reason I keep going back to him is the Call of Cthulhu that I grew up playing was always more Durlith than Lovecraft.
0: Okay. Well, I'm sorry that it was on (laughs) you, Scott, like 40 years ago. But, you know, things have moved on. Thatcher's not in government anymore, either, Scott, (laughs) just to break the news to you. I imagine that the necromancers
1: in the Conservative Party have (laughs) kept her spirit alive and guiding things behind the scene. So I wouldn't be so sure
0: there, Paul.
1: I wouldn't be so
2: sure. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're listening to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
1: It is that time, once again, when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name.
0: Starting off with a thanks to Ryan
2: Blodgett. And thank you much to, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, Ruin Ortega.
1: And thank you very much to Martin Stackelberg.
0: And thanks to Michael Bertolini. And thank you very much to Ken Orstall. And thank you to Anthony O'Darley. And thanks to Mike Carson. And thank you very much to Alexander Taylor.
1: And thank you to Alessandro Carai,
0: And thanks to
2: Blex. And from a singular name to a plural here, thank you very much to the Osnarkies.
1: <laughs> That's lovely. And as ever, if we have completely mangled any of your names, please let us know and we'll
0: rectify our horrendous mistakes or or we might just bugger it up in a different fashion yes but uh, we'll do our best well if you've enjoyed the podcast and want
2: to have a debate with your friendly neighborhood ghoul over the moral implications of listening to it whether you find it on itunes or whatever platform it is that you uh, you find it on then by all means spread the word it'd be lovely to see word being spread out there we're quite interactive on various social media not so much on facebook uh, these days but more so on twitter where i believe we can be found by the name of the good friends of je
1: yep and we have
0: a very lively discord server and i shall put a link to that in the show notes okay well i think that wraps it up for today so you've been listening to the good friends of jackson Elias. until next time it's a goodbye from me and cheerio from me and a farewell from me
1: blasphemous tomes com